Welcome to the latest episode of View from the Loch, sponsored by Loch Lomond Whiskies. The latest guest is director of golf at one of the most glamorous and Hollywood-starred-fueled clubs in the world. Welcome, director of golf of Bel Air Country Club, Dave Potis. Bill, good afternoon. It's so good to be here with you. I haven't had the pleasure of visiting Loch Lomond yet, but hopefully someday in the not-too-distant future. David, the gates will be open for you. The gates will be open for you. You'll be more than welcome. Uh, Dave, now, you started your career caddying, I think, or certainly your, your entry into golf as a caddy. How did that come about? Well, the way that came about is, is simple. I grew up in the state of Minnesota where it snows all winter long. And uh, some friends and I trying to beat the snow and get out of the bad weather all piled into a car, ended up in Phoenix, Arizona. And when I ran out of money, which didn't take very long because I didn't start with very much, uh, the idea came about, we all were pretty good golfers. We went down to the local country club and, and kind of talked our way in and ended up caddying. And that was how we, we beat the snow and paid the rent in those crummy little apartments. And, and when you were caddying, um, any particular stories that, that sort of stand out that you can recall or remember, Dave? Well, it's interesting because I played the game. I really didn't know anything about caddying, but I really thought that if, if you were a reasonably good player, caddying should be fairly easy, but it wasn't easy at all. And uh, being a caddy, I think, is as much uh, about being a psychologist and maybe acting like a bartender or anything else. you got to yeah. wear a lot of hats when you're caddying. And th that was the part of it that, that I didn't quite, quite, get initially i thought it was all about the x's and the o's but you're much more than just uh, a guy carrying the bag out there yeah i think for people that haven't played in the states i've, I've played a bit uh over there which is a fantastic experience um you know you you get the guys that put the doobie brothers on uh or the eagles uh crack up the uh, bottles of beer you know we've got the sun beating down uh, was it that sort of course? Uh, was it very sociable, Dave? No. Interestingly enough, where I started caddying, it was a place, uh, a club called Phoenix Country Club in Phoenix, Arizona. And at the time, that was where the Phoenix Open was played for many, many years. And it was played yep. there while I was caddying and uh, subsequently working there. So it wasn't the music and that, that kind of a crowd. It was a little bit more buttoned up. And, uh, but again, a great place to have worked and, and kind of got my start in the game. And I, I went from the caddy yard to the bag room. I think I had uh, almost every job at that club and, uh, and what, 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 my career there. Well, absolutely. And, you know, you, you've been, uh, you know, interviewed about that and Dave, and it's really, it's really interesting. I think, um, having a background, where it's diverse in golf, you know, or hospitality, if, if you like, where you've worked behind a bar or in the kitchen, you know, and you've been a caddy, you've been in the, the bag room, you know, you've seen it from a number of different angles. And it gives you a great understanding 
of, I, I guess, a mentality that exists within those different departments, uh, the challenges as well. So when you're in the, the bag room, um, you know, tell me and tell the listeners a bit about your experiences there. Well, there's not a better place to learn the golf business than in the bag room. I mean, when I started yeah. there, and I think, if you will, if I've had any success in my career, and I've had a, a, a small bit of it, it all goes back to when you start out in the mail room or the bag room, if you will, and you're cleaning carts and pulling out golf bags and picking range balls and doing the most rudimentary of tasks, you have a better appreciation for just what goes into running the day-to-day operation of a big golf club. And I think as you do move up the stairs, hopefully, and I hope I, I haven't lost the appreciation for just how hard those soldiers on the ground work. And when you're in that bag room and you're chasing down lost head covers and sand wedges and somebody comes in and and, uh, they they lost a ball retriever. I'll tell you a funny story. One day a a player came in, said, David, I've lost my seven iron. I said, "Uh, well, let me, uh, I'll keep my eye out for it. He said, no, no, I know exactly where it is. I said, well, where is it? I'll go get it for you. He said, it's in the middle of the pond on number two. It slipped out of my hand. <laughs> so all of a sudden there I am trying to figure out how I'm going to, how I'm going to get into this pond on number two and track down the seven iron. But, but you, you just have an appreciation for what those people in, in those jobs do. And I think ultimately, as I said, when you uh, rise up the stairs uh, it, it just helps you better operate whatever it is operation you're running. Yeah, no, ab- absolutely right. Actually, I, you have reminded me of a story uh, that, that I have just recalled, uh, and it was uh, at the K Club. Uh, and um, uh, there was a, a famous, so uh, cricket is, is uh, you know, a fairly big thing over in the UK and, and sort of Commonwealth um, countries. And uh, there was a, a, a cricketer called Darren Goff, um, who was, you know, he had his own radio, sports radio program. And his best man, he was best man for a wedding. And there were about 10 guys came over. Um, and for whatever reason, they thought it would be funny to uh, snap uh, the, uh, the best man's putter um, head off you know, the, uh, uh, and sort of rested on his golf bag. So um, when he picked up his uh, golf bag um, and, and reached for his putter, the head fell off onto the floor. And he was absolutely convinced uh, it, it was it was our fault. He, he thought that we'd done something uh, to, to make his putter head. He went absolutely mad. Uh, and I had to go and get uh, one of the guys, might have been, even been Darren himself, I said, you better go over and, and tell your buddy here, you know, that he's doing a war dance on the on the putting green. Uh, that it was, I'm suspecting it was you guys <laughs> or the prank. And yeah, and it was, but he was not. He was not happy. That's for sure. But anyway, um, I I digress. Now, Dave. Okay, that's all great, and and that's a grinding. I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you one more bag room story. All right. Go. One more great bag room story. So when I moved uh, out of the caddy yard and into the bag room, and at the time, as I said, we were hosting the Phoenix Open. And uh, Ben Crenshaw was my hero. 
at the time. I thought the, the, the sun rose and set with Ben Crenshaw's golf game. I really enjoyed everything about the way he played. And back in the old days, unlike now where the players all bring their clubs right back in their hotel room, they never take their eyes off them. In those days, in the early and mid 80s, I'll bet more than half the players left their clubs at the golf course. So Crenshaw gets done playing a practice round and he drops his clubs off in the bag room. And being a big Ben Crenshaw fan, when he walked around the corner, I couldn't wait to take his putter out and start putting down the aisles of the bag room with Gentle Ben, arguably one of the most famous putters in the world. Totally. Well, not 15 seconds later, he comes walking back in the bag room. He had left something in his bag, and there I am putting with his putter. And all of a sudden, I hear, all of a sudden, I hear, how does it work for you? And I looked up, and I was aghast. There he was, and I was putting with his putter. And being the wonderful gentleman that he was, he said, no, no, just keep putting with it. Just make sure it gets back in the bag when you're done. And I was mortified. <laughs> absolutely <laughs> mortified but it went on to reinforce what i had always believed that he was a gentleman and a great guy and that that brief interaction just reinforced everything that i thought was great about that man well he, he you know he was a legendary putter you bet he, he was, was. a legendary he, oh my God, uh, you know, he was number one forever. And the fact that you were able to get your hands on, uh, well, the crown jewels of his golf bag. That's right. <laughs> you know, and, and actually kind of ask you, can you remember, you know, putting with it? Was there anything that struck you about his putter? Well, what struck me about his putter was that it was in poor condition. I mean, it, it, it was full of nicks and chips and, uh, you know, it looked very battle-worn. It, 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 it didn't look like something that should be hanging on the wall. And I, I, I just have a sneaking suspicion over the years he may have banged it once or twice. But, uh, yeah, it was a, certainly a, a beautiful, beautiful putter. A Wilson 8802, if you, if you remember. That, that's what he was putting with at the time. But one of my favorite memories of being in that bag room. Yeah, well, that's a great story. That's a great story. It was one of the legends of the game. And, of course, yourself. So moving on then to um, golf, playing golf, you know, you, you played at the highest level, Dave, um, you know, and we, we need to point that out. You, you actually played in the 2007 Buick Invitational, which was won by Tiger Woods. So you've been there where most of us would love to go, um, but will never be that good uh you actually made it so can you explain how you got into the tournament how you sure. played and who you played with well you know one of the things in our business is i've always thought that when they think about pga professionals the first thing they think about is we play the game we play the game we teach the game we administer the game and, and if you will i've always worked hard and, and tried to take pride in my playing because i thought that was important and uh i just thought it gives us a, a certain level of credibility and have competed and played my whole life even though i've got a very big and busy job and and what whatever year that was 2007 uh i entered a monday qualifier and i happened to win the qualifier. I was the low qualifier. Uh, 
that year, got into the tournament. And uh, once I got there, I was way over my head. Uh, it just was. And it, it's interesting, as I've said to many, it's funny when you play in your local PGA things and you're, you're a reasonably good player and you get out of your car and you look around and you say, wow, I'm better than most of these guys. In fact, I might be the best guy playing here today. And then all of a sudden you drive into the parking lot at Torrey Pines and there's Tiger Woods and there's so-and-so and you say, you know what? I'm probably the worst player in this field. It's a horrible feeling. It really is. And, uh, but it's, it's, it's nice to be inside the ropes. It's fun. I've had the chance on a handful of occasions to, I'm a pretty good qualifier, but I'm a, seem to be a poor performer once I get there. And I think part of that has to do with, you're so excited to have qualified. It's like you have crossed the finish line at that point. And yeah. uh, you, you, you get into the tournament, you're overwhelmed. I play way too many practice rounds. I hit way too many balls. And by the time Thursday morning rolls around, uh, I seem to turn into a 77 shooter. And, uh, you know, those are the kind of numbers that rolled out. But but one of the things I remember so much about that year, my wife was there with me. And uh, I said, we tee off at whatever time we tee off, 930. She says, I don't care. I'm going to watch Tiger Woods. (laughs) Yeah. So that was that. That was about how that was about how important my playing in that event was to her. She couldn't wait to get out there and follow Tiger around, and, and that was uh, that one was when he was kind of at the top of his game, and uh, he was pretty impressive. And, and, and yeah, oh yeah, he was. Oh, at that stage, two thousand seven. Wow, I mean, yeah, it was all about all about Tiger. Um, do you remember who you played with, and did any of them shoot Lou? Uh, no, I, I don't remember. Uh, let's see. Uh, nobody played pretty well. You know, when you're a, when you're a Monday qualifier, the pairings you get, uh, are medium at best. And, uh, so you either play real early, real late, uh, the good pairings and the good times, uh, go to, uh, the best players. And let's see, the fellow I played with, uh, played at Virginia, and he's now on the Golf Channel. He's got a mustache. Uh, help me. You may remember uh, uh, that yeah. is. Uh, yeah. But anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, everybody, when you're, when you're a local PGA professional and you qualify, the guys treat you, you know, Johnson Wagner, that's who I played with, Johnson Wagner. And right. uh, he's working for the Golf Channel now, I believe. And uh, he was wonderful. You know, he knew I was swimming in water that was over my head. And it was kind of funny. I don't hit the ball particularly long, but I hit the ball fairly straight. And Johnson and I are playing. And uh, I don't remember the name of the third fella. Obviously, he didn't make much of an impression on me. But, uh, (laughs) you know, Torrey Pines is an incredibly long golf course. Incredibly Mm. long. In fact, I, I want to say that a south course was about 7,600 yards, which meant to me there were three par fours I was not able to reach in two. All right? Mm. So right. I, had, I had a yardage book out in my hand with a wedge. And uh, every, time I, every time I made par on one of those 480-yard par fours, Johnson would give me a little clap on the side because he knew 
he knew how hard I was fighting those long par fours, but, but it was great. Absolutely great. Well, I mean, as I said, Dave, you, you've been, uh, you know, and you've achieved something that only most of us could really dream about. So, I mean, it's a fantastic experience and a great story. It's just lovely to hear somebody that qualifies and then has that sort of out of outer body experience, uh, you know, when it, when it actually comes to it. But I, I, I mean, you're, you're obviously ingrained uh, in golf, Dave, because you, you were, and you may still be, but a long time member of the PGA of America uh, and you served on its rules committee. Yes. Yeah. I, uh, and- uh, it, yes, it, if you will, being on the rules committee has been a wonderful, wonderful thing for me. Uh, when I was working as a way back in, in, at Phoenix country club and worked my way from the caddy yard to the bag room and then into the golf shop, the gentleman that yeah. was the head professional at the time was also on the rules committee. And I thought it was, ve- I was very impressed by the fact that people would come in with a rules question and he was able to quote page and verse and rule and and no one ever questioned him and the again the credibility that he bought brought to the conversation was fabulous and i was envious of that and uh when the time was right uh, i seemed to have a knack for it i got involved in it myself uh, and going forward you know as i play less and not as well it's allowed me to stay involved at the game at the very highest level and mm. uh, I've had an opportunity to officiate uh, at the Masters, at the Ryder Cup. I happened to have the deciding match at the last Ryder Cup at Whistling Straits with Colin Morikawa and Victor Hovland. Uh, so yeah. I really, I've really enjoyed being a part of the rules uh, committee and, uh, again, doing those kind of things. It's been great. I mean, obviously, obviously I mean, Dave, that's fantastic, and congratulations. I've got to ask have you ever had a, a, a really tough ruling to make, you know, and can you remember that experience? I, I can. I, I can. I had, uh, I've had some tough ones, and, uh, but the one that stands out, in 2016 at Baltusrol, Jimmy Walker won that event. And on the right. 17th hole, uh, I was working 17. He hit a ball way up in the, in the, uh, hospitality tents and I got him out of the hospitality tents and, and he dropped it. And just as he was getting ready to hit the ball, uh, through a couple of drops, uh, the ball rolled over and moved and he, and he looked, and, and this was shortly after, if I remember right, uh, the Dustin Johnson incident at, uh, Oakmont. And anyway, the ball rolled over he looked at me and I said, I happened to be watching right there. And I said to him, I said, I didn't see anything that you did that leads me to believe you caused that ball to move. I said, play it from the new spot, no penalty. And seconds later, I think he had a hybrid in his hand. He knocked that ball down the fairway. Well, moments after he, he walks away, I hear in my earpiece, we're reviewing the ruling on 17. And I thought, oh. wow. I thought, wow, did I miss something? Did something happen here I didn't see? Did I make a mistake? Uh, and, and, and I literally almost had to go change my pants. I, 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 I was frozen, frozen, thinking about what could happen. And uh, 
in the next group, I think Jason Day hit a ball up in the same place and I called for help. I said, I need a, we, we, we call up an official that kind of moves around a rover. And I said, I need a rover on 17. They said, how come? I said, I need a rover on 17. Because I thought if I made a mistake, I didn't want to make another mistake moments later. Now I'll have the whole PGA championship in a knot. And uh, so I, I called for help and somebody came in and handled the second ruling. Well, I stood under a tree wiping the sweat off my brow. And uh, after about 20 minutes, I said, how are we doing on that review on 17? And through my earpiece, I hear everything's fine on 17. <laughs> I thought, wow. So, so you get some tense moments and, uh, you know, kind of to that point, uh, having had the good fortune, as you mentioned, to play at the highest level, I'm far more nervous officiating than I ever was playing far more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With the reason being, if you make a mistake and we all make mistakes, if you make a mistake, you know, the guys are going to be talking about you maybe forever. Uh, depending mm-hmm. on the level and the, at the, the mistake you make. So, I, again, I love officiating. I love being part of our rules committee, but but it's it, it's nerve-wracking for sure. Well, I, I guess if you think about it in another way, you know, if you're a, a, a soccer referee, football referee, or, you know, um, in, in basketball or American football, or, you know, you can, you can cop a lot of uh, abuse, uh, officials of, of any sport, and, and you were officiating right at the top. Um, that that is a lot of pressure for sure. And and you were, I mean, David, that's really fascinating. But you're also on Titleist National Advisory Board as well. Yeah, um, proud of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, obviously, I've got to ask you, what was your opinion on the proposed rollback? So the reduction in the distance golf balls can travel and also the bifurcation about creating separate equipment rules for elite golfers that would result in a different set of regulations for professionals as against sort of amateurs. What, what, what's your opinions on both of those things? Well, that's a great question. And, and I do have an opinion and I'm going to give it to you. Uh, but good. It's, I'll tell you one thing, this has generated a lot of discussion, a lot of discussion against, with my friends that are both on the tour, my friends that are fellow club professionals. Uh, As you said, I'm affiliated with Titleist Golf. Uh, Titleist certainly has an opinion. My members, the people here that I deal with on a daily basis have an opinion. Myself, now again, this is just one man's opinion. I'm against it. I I really am. And I'll tell you why. I I think that golf is there are other ways to 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 rein the game in, growing the rough, narrowing the fairways, things like that. I've yet to meet a golfer that wants to hit the ball shorter. Not one. I've never met one that wants to hit the ball shorter. But but more specifically, Mm. one of the things that I think that hasn't been discussed enough, golf is the only sport where, for example, you have a college player who might play on a PG, in a PGA Tour event one week, play in a college event the next week, play in a state amateur the following week. So in golf, uh, you have players that are jumping up and down the ladder, sometimes on a weekly basis. And I just don't know how 
a player could play in the NCAA championship with the long titleist and then qualify for the U.S. Open, and now they hand him two dozen balls in the beginning of the week, and now he's got to learn how to play with the short ball. I, I just – and golf is very unique in that way. There aren't any other sports that I can think of where you are you are bouncing up and down the, the level. Once you go from uh, amateur football, you know, college football to professional football, you don't play amateur football anymore. And once you go up the ladder, you go up. But, but golfers, uh, especially in, in their formative years, are oftentimes playing in various levels of competition in very short periods of time. And, and just the last little step in, in this that I feel very strongly about, again, just an opinion, one of the things I think people enjoy about golf, they come to Bel Air Country Club. It's a championship golf course. They shoot a good score. They're able to measure their ability and their talent against the best players in the world. They use the same rules. They use the same equipment. They use the same golf ball. And they're playing on the same venues. I'd hate right. to have one one of my guys, let's say uh, two months from now, obviously we know the U.S. Opens at Los Angeles Country Club just down the street from us, and my mm. guys will get a kick out of going out there, playing those U.S. Open tees, and trying to measure themselves against the best players in the world. Now, how'd you like to put, you, you go out there and you play and you put an asterisk after that 68 you shot. Well, you shot 68. But you use the long ball. They were all doing it with the short ball. I think one of the beauties of our game is that we all use the same equipment, the same courses, and it allows people to, to talk about, measure, compare. And I think that's a good thing for the sport. I really do. Yeah, Dave, I, I agree. It just feels overcomplicated. Um, I haven't really spoken to too many people who are in favor uh, of of either. Um, as you say, the beauty of the sport, handicap system, of course, great as a great leveler. But you're right, you know, you want to experience the equipment, you want to hit it as far as you possibly can. You you want to see the players, you know, par it down the fairway. And and I appreciate that, particularly in the UK, that there are uh, courses for the open, for example, you know they are worried about some that are on the uh, the, the road that, that that are too short, um, and and will get I guess destroyed depending on weather. Um, but you know, Lynx Golf, you know, can blow a hoolie. You get into the bunkers; it's tough gig. Uh, it's not always. You get four days of sunshine um, at St Andrews. Okay, you get four days of sunshine. The scores are low. The crowd get a suntan. Everybody's having a drink and a chat and a laugh and watching loads of birdies and eagles. You know, you turn up four years later back at St Andrews, blowing a hoolie for four days. You get soaked. Uh, the players shoot, you know, high. And you're not seeing as many birdies and eagles. You know, I'll tell you what, give me the first experience. Uh, you know, yeah, of it's, course. It's, yeah. Uh, of course. And, and, and the game goes like that. You get good days, you take it, you get bad days, you end up on the right end of the draw or the wrong end of the draw. To your point, I think, didn't Tiger Woods shoot 80 or 81 at St. Andrews in one of those opens because he was playing in that, the, the, the foul weather you were, you were describing. Uh, that's what happens. Yeah. That's what yeah. happens. Yeah. I remember, I remember Rory McIlroy hitting a ball 
uh, and the wind was so strong it practically came back, to, you know, right to his feet. Um, you know, it was it was almost uh, ridiculous. But that's that's links golf, and you've got to cope with it. And if you get the good days, you take it. So listen, yeah. I, I agree. But Bel Air Country Club. Now I'm gonna credit. I went to school with a chap and one of your members called Lance O'Connor and, and given Lance a shout out for this because uh, he, he um, you know, I knew he'd done quite well when he left school. I, I didn't know how well he'd done, but uh, when I was uh, in LA, he picked me up and, and a colleague uh, and I thought, pretty smart uh, motor you've got there, pretty smart car you've got there, Lance, or Jeep. Um, and uh, then he, he, he took took us to Santa Monica Airstrip, which I couldn't really work out why. And then, I really, then he had his office <laughs> on the Airstrip, and he showed me his nice private plane. And I thought, all those hours and hours of us studying mathematics and English literature and English language, you know, and failing probably most of it has actually, it's probably paid off for you, Lance, at the end of the day. So the highlight was he was a member of Bel Air uh, and he invited uh, myself and my colleague Donald uh, to, to Bel Air. And uh, I can tell you, folks, I, I always look for a club that's got heart and soul Dave, you'll you'll be the same. You get asked lots of questions about golf clubs and what's your favorite golf club and da 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 da. And 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 you know, for me, it's the club that's got atmosphere. It's the club that's you know that you can just sense that it's got some depth to it. Um, so they say that LA Country Club is for the money guys. Riviera is the corporate club, but Bel Air is where the fun's at. And what I saw was a bunch of, of members and, and guys predominantly uh, having a whiskey and smoking cigars out in a terrace. Uh, you, you've got a pretty funky par three as part of the course. And everybody was having a blast. Uh, and I thought, my God, this club is on steroids. It is, the, the, you know, everybody's smiling. Everybody's uh, laughing. Uh, loud, um, but, you know, exceptionally friendly club. So, Dave, is my experience what it actually is? 100%. And here's what I would say uh, about this club. It's a world-class championship golf course. But you know what? Yeah. There are a lot of those out there. There really are. I mean, you can go through the list. There are Lots and lots of great, great golf courses all over the world. There are far fewer great clubs. Now, as great as this golf course is, it's a better club. This is mm. as fine a club as you will find anywhere. And it's a club in the pure sense of the word. The guys come up there, up here. They enjoy each other's company. They mix well. They enjoy the game and the spirit in which it was intended. Nobody cares whether you shoot 66, 76, 86, or 96 when all is done and they sit on that patio and have that whiskey. Everybody's a friend, and they'll play with most anybody or each other. And that's one of the things that makes this such an enjoyable and welcoming place to be. Now, I've got to say this. 
you called our 10th hole a funky par three. Now it's been called a lot of things, but funky has, <laughs> has never been one of them. It's, it's, a, it's, it's 215 yards over a daunting yeah. canyon with a punch bowl green and a suspension bridge. And it's been called one of the great holes in all of golf, but funky, I may have to take a bit of exception with. I might have had too many of those whiskeys and too many cigars with your members. So maybe it's a bit of a blur, Dave, but you're right. It's an awesome, awesome golf hole. It's a great great hole. And I think clubs uh, could take a lesson from the things that have have been done so well here. And that is taking, taking such pride in the membership process and making sure you get the right people here because, because they're really the lifeblood of a club. Mm. And, and, Mm -hmm. you know, people think the green committee is important or the golf committee. You know what, if a green committee makes a mistake with a bunker, you get a bulldozer out and you change it. But, but you go, you go, you go five or 10 years and get some of the, if you will, the wrong people in a club, you can change the whole personality of, of the establishment. And, and this club Mm. over the years has taken great pride in, in, and just making sure, uh, Everything is right. We've got a wonderful group of people. And I think what you experience is something we'd like to think is experienced every day. Well, I, I, I certainly got that impression, the camaraderie. The camaraderie was was incredible. Um, and, and Lance was explaining that, you know, it, it's not a forced thing. Uh, it, it is part of the culture of the club and this sort of acknowledgement. You acknowledge everybody, you know, Hello, you know, greet, um, communicate uh, in a variety of different ways. And if there is somebody that uh, maybe doesn't have those skills or sort of ignores that uh, ethos, um, then uh, you know the, the, it's not the club for them. Uh, and what I saw was you know real true friendship uh, and that depth. Dave, you know that uh, that I was talking about. It it was it was an incredible experience. Yeah, and that that I I'm very proud to say that's very typical of a of an of an average day here because one of the things that you you never know who you'll bump into here uh, from all walks of life and all you know venues of work and everybody checks their ego at the door and has a wonderful time. And again, it, it's the love of the game of golf that binds all of these people together. And uh, it makes it a fun place to work. It makes it a fun place to be. Yeah. And obviously, staff, you know, we are there to serve Loch Lomond Golf Club and, and Bel Air, uh, the guide as well, of course. Um, you know, so how, how did you get the, the, the job of director of golf, Dave? one of the most prestigious golf clubs in the world. Well, I, I, I count my lucky stars every single day. That's for sure. Uh, but, but some years ago, I guess I've been here, I've been here 21 years now. Yeah. The fellow that I worked yeah. for in Arizona, the fellow that I worked for in Arizona uh, had an affiliation with this club and I hadn't been here and uh but was well familiar with its reputation and in place in the golf community and when eddie marins arguably one of the most famous golf professionals in in the history of our game was getting ready to retire uh 
he he reached out to someone here and I got a call one day and, and they said, uh, Eddie Marins is retiring and we'd like to talk to you. And one thing led to another. And s- soon thereafter, uh, my wife and I were moving to California. So oh. I think it, it also, it lends itself in our business. Uh, there's so much co-mingling and member guests and things like that, that uh, I think if you, if you mind your P's and Q's and you work hard a little bit like coaches in sport, then people seem to know where the good ones are out there. Sure. Sure. Well, certainly, uh, you know, that, that, that's true. That's true, Dave. Uh, and you've got to be a right fit for a club, you know, uh, as well, which is going back to the sort of ethos uh, of of Bel Air, and you clearly have that uh, that 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 sort of fit to what is required at the club, which is which is more part of your elbow, Dave. Um, just going back to the golf course, there's a famous swing bridge on the 18th, and there's also a number of tunnels uh, as well at Bel Air. Would you like to explain for those who have never been to Bel Air Country Club uh, about the bridge and, and and the tunnels? Certainly. When George Thomas in 1925 was building this golf course, uh, he wanted to, to, to go a certain direction, but there was this 140-yard canyon, and uh, he really wanted to go there, and he happened to have a putter in his hand, and he, he, he took the putter, teed up a ball, and he, and he managed to get it over this 140-yard canyon with a putter. And he said, you know what? He said, if I can... Uh, hit it over this canyon with a putter, we can build a bridge and play this way. So uh, there you have it. We built we built a bridge. And uh, like I said, it's a 215-yard par 3. And it, it, it goes over this expansion. And we have this big, white, famous suspension bridge that spans the canyon that you walk across when you play the 10th hole. But one of the other things that we have is this this golf course winds itself in and out of a handful of canyons is we've got tunnels. And when you walk off the ninth green, you walk through a tunnel that's not much bigger than a golf cart and you take an elevator up to the 10th tee. It was voted the (laughs) finest elevator in all of golf. Might be the only (laughs) one. But uh, so... One of the things that that is so unique, and I think that that people appreciate, and I get calls almost on a weekly basis from people, golf course architect aficionados that want to come out and look around because the way George Thomas was able to route this golf course through these canyons and hills was really genius, especially at the time when they didn't have the ability to move dirt and land around like we do today. So it really is a one of the great golf courses, but also one of the great architectural feats in the game, the way they were able to put this together. It's really something to see. And if your viewers are around and hopefully they have an opportunity to play, it's a special, special place and a great walk. Oh, listen, absolutely special place it is, Dave. Uh, Dave, um, Bella is hosting the U.S. Uh, Women's Amateur um, and LA Country Club, which is, of course, just down the road, uh, is hosting the U.S. Open. So uh, with regards to the U.S. Open, what type of golfer, because you'll know LA Country Club pretty well, uh, what, what type of golfer will suit 
LA Country Club when it comes to the U.S. Open? Uh, it's my belief because the LA Country Club is Bermuda grass, like we are, and we don't mm. often play. We don't often play opens on Bermuda grass, and when that Bermuda grass gets of any length at all, it's it's very very difficult to control the ball. So. I, I wouldn't say a long hitter because hitting the ball long seems to be the price of admission on the PGA Tour these days. So everybody's long. But I think it's going to take a straight hitter, and I think it's going to take someone who's a very good iron player. I think the, the, the approach shots to the green, I think it's going to favor someone who hits the ball straight and uh, someone like Colin Morikawa, who's an excellent iron player. I think L.A. Country Club will, will play into its hands. The other thing I think that's going to be interesting, in, in California and Los Angeles in particular, we get no rain in the summer. I mean, we don't see a cloud in the month of June. So what that means is it means that the USGA will have perfect control over the texture, the firmness of the greens, because we don't have to worry about going to sleep tonight and waking up to three inches of rain tomorrow morning. So I would expect mm. the greens to be very firm and very fast, and they will have them. Uh, it'll be a great test of golf. It's a wonderful golf course, and it'll be a great, great test of golf. Okay, Dave, that's a, that's a great insight, I think, for, for the listeners uh, coming up. I mean, absolutely, this has flown by, Dave. Uh, really, really enjoyed the stories and your insight uh, as well into your career and the game of golf and Bel Air Country Club. Um, and we would like to thank you from View on the Lock for making yourself available. Uh, we hope we, we may get somebody else from Bel Air Country Club to, to come on uh, and, and join us later down the line, which would be, which would be fabulous. Uh, but Dave, from behalf of all of us at Loch Lomond Golf Club over in Scotland, we'd like to thank you and wish you all the best for the season, and of course, you're welcome here anytime. Well, it's been a treat to be on the show with you. I've enjoyed it as well, and I look forward to a trip to Scotland and being able to see the wonderful golf course you're a part of, Loch Lomond. Thank you very much. Thank you very much to Dave for a very insightful podcast. Really, really appreciate him coming in, and it is a fabulous club, Bel Air. Uh, absolutely terrific place. Um, so, as I mentioned, Loch Lomond Whiskies are sponsoring the podcast. And the question this week is, which golfer did Dave tip to win the US Open? Which golfer did Dave tip to win the US Open? You can contact me through bill.donald at lochloman.com or at billdonald1, which is my Twitter account. Thank you for listening. And good luck.